Section 10 of Volume 1A of History of England, From the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Hoffman. History of England, From the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688, by David Hume. Volume 1A, Section 10. Chapter 2, Part 3. These ravagers, sailing next to Sussex, began to plunder the country near Chichester, but the order which Alfred had everywhere established sufficed here, without his presence, for the defense of the place, and the rebels, meeting with a new repulse, in which many of them were killed, and some of their ships taken, were obliged to put again to sea, and were discouraged from attempting any other enterprise. Meanwhile the Danish invaders in Essex, having united their force under the command of Hastings, advanced into the inland country, and made spoil of all around them, but soon had reason to repent of their temerity. The English army left in London, assisted by a body of the citizens, attacked the enemy's entrenchments at Bamfleet, overpowered the garrison, and, having done great execution upon them, carried off the wife and two sons of Hastings. Alfred generously spared these captives, and even restored them to Hastings, on condition that he should depart the kingdom. But, though the king had thus honorably rid himself of this dangerous enemy, he had not entirely subdued or expelled the invaders. The piratical Danes willingly followed in an excursion any prosperous leader who gave them hopes of booty, but were not so easily induced to relinquish their enterprise or submit to return, baffled without plunder, into their native country. Great numbers of them, after the departure of Hastings, seized and fortified Chobury at the mouth of the Thames, and, having left a garrison there, they marched along the river till they came to Boddington, in the country of Gloucester, where, being reinforced by some Welsh, they threw up entrenchments and prepared for their defense. The king here surrounded them with the whole force of his dominions, and, as he had now a certain prospect of victory, he resolved to trust nothing to chance, but rather to master his enemies by famine than assault. They were reduced to such extremities, that, having eaten their own horses, and having many of them perished with hunger, they made a desperate sally upon the English, and, though the greater number fell in the action, a considerable body made their escape. These roved about for some time in England, still pursued by the vigilance of Alfred. They attacked Leicester with success, defended themselves in Hartford, and then fled to Quatford, where they were finally broken and subdued. The small remains of them either dispersed themselves among their countrymen in Northumberland and East Anglia, or had recourse again to the sea, where they exercised piracy under the command of Sigfert, a Northumbrian. This freebooter, well acquainted with Alfred's naval preparations, had framed vessels of a new construction, higher and longer and swifter than those of the English. But the king soon discovered his superior skill by building vessels still higher and longer and swifter than those of the Northumbrians, and, falling upon them while they were exercising their ravages in the west, he took twenty of their ships, and, having tried all the prisoners at Winchester, he hanged them as pirates the common enemies of mankind. The well-timed severity of this execution, together with the excellent posture of defense established everywhere, restored full tranquility in England, 
and provided for the future security of the government. The East Anglian and Northumbrian Danes, on the first appearance of Alfred upon their frontiers, made anew the most humble submissions to him, and he thought it prudent to take them under his immediate government, without establishing over them a viceroy of their own nation. The Welsh also acknowledged his authority, and this great prince had now, by prudence and justice and valor, established his sovereignty over all the southern parts of the island, from the English Channel to the frontiers of Scotland, when he died, in the vigor of his age and the full strength of his faculties, after a glorious reign of twenty-nine years and a half, in which he deservedly attained the appellation of Alfred the Great, and the title of founder of the English monarchy. The merit of this prince, both in private and public life, may with advantage be set in opposition to that of any monarch or citizen which the annals of any age or any nation can present to us. He seems indeed to be the model of that perfect character which, under the denomination of a sage or wise man, philosophers have been fond of delineating, rather as a fiction of their imagination than in hopes of ever seeing it really existing. So happily were all his virtues tempered together, so justly were they blended, and so powerfully did each prevent the other from exceeding its proper boundaries. He knew how to reconcile the most enterprising spirit with the coolest moderation, the most obstinate perseverance with the easiest flexibility, the most severe justice with the gentlest lenity, the greatest vigor in commanding with the most perfect affability of deportment, the highest capacity and inclination for science with the most shining talents for action. His civil and his military virtues are almost equally the objects of our admiration, excepting only that the former, being more rare among princes, as well as more useful, seem chiefly to challenge our applause. Nature also, as if desirous that so bright a production of her skill should be set in the fairest light, had bestowed on him every bodily accomplishment, vigor of limbs, dignity of shape and air, with a pleasing, engaging, and open countenance. Fortune alone, by throwing him into that barbarous age, deprived him of historians worthy to transmit his fame to posterity, and we wish to see him delineated in more lively colors, and with more particular strokes, that we may at least perceive some of those small specks and blemishes from which, as a man, it is impossible he could be entirely exempted. But we should give but an imperfect idea of Alfred's merit, were we to confine our narration to his military exploits, and were not more particular in our account of his institutions for the execution of justice, and of his zeal for the encouragement of arts and sciences. After Alfred had subdued, and had settled or expelled the Danes, he found the kingdom in the most wretched condition, desolated by the ravages of those barbarians, and thrown into disorders which were calculated to perpetuate its misery. Though the great armies of the Danes were broken, the country was full of straggling troops of that nation, who, being accustomed to live by plunder, were become incapable of industry, and who, from the natural ferocity of their manners, indulged themselves in committing violence even beyond what was requisite to supply their necessities the english themselves reduced to the most extreme indigence by those continued depredations had shaken off all bands of government and those who had been plundered to-day betook themselves next day to a like disorderly life and from despair joined the robbers in pillaging and ruining their fellow-citizens 
these were the evils for which it was necessary that the vigilance and activity of alfred should provide a remedy that he might render the execution of justice strict and regular he divided all england into counties these counties he subdivided into hundreds and the hundreds into tithings every householder was answerable for the behavior of his family and slaves and even of his guests if they lived above three days in his house ten neighboring householders were formed into one corporation who under the name of a tithing decenary or freeburg were answerable for each other's conduct and over whom one person called a tithing man headburg or bushholder was appointed to preside every man was punished as an outlaw who did not register himself in some tithing and no man could change his habitation without a warrant or certificate from the borsholder of the tithing to which he formerly belonged when any person in any tithing or decenary was guilty of a crime the borsholder was summoned to answer for him and if he were not willing to be surety for his appearance and his clearing himself the criminal was committed to prison and there detained till his trial if he fled either before or after finding sureties the borsholder and decenary became liable to inquiry and were exposed to the penalties of law thirty-one days were allowed them for producing the criminal and if that time elapsed without their being able to find him the borsholder with two other members of the decenary was obliged to appear and together with three chief members of the three neighboring decenaries making twelve in all to swear that his decenary was free from all privity both of the crime committed and of the escape of the criminal if the borsholder could not find such a number to answer for their innocence the decenary was compelled by fine to make satisfaction to the king according to the degree of the offence by this institution every man was obliged from his own interest to keep a watchful eye over the conduct of his neighbors and was in a manner surety for the behavior of those who were placed under the division to which he belonged whence these decenaries received the name of frank pledges such a regular distribution of the people with such a strict confinement in their habitation may not be necessary in times when men are more inured to obedience and justice and it might perhaps be regarded as destructive of liberty and commerce in a polished state but it was well calculated to reduce that fierce and licentious people under the salutary restraint of law and government but alfred took care to temper these rigors by other institutions favorable to the freedom of the citizens and nothing could be more popular and liberal than his plan for the administration of justice the borsholder summoned together his whole decenary to assist him in deciding any lesser differences which occurred among the members of this small community in affairs of greater moment in appeals from the decenary or in controversies arising between members of different decenaries the cause was brought before the hundred which consisted of ten decenaries or a hundred families of freemen and which was regularly assembled once in four weeks for the deciding of causes their method of decision deserves to be noted as being the origin of juries an institution admirable in itself and the best calculated for the preservation of liberty and the administration of justice that ever was devised by the wit of man twelve freeholders were chosen who having sworn together with the hundreder or presiding magistrate of that division to administer impartial justice proceeded to the examination of that cause which was submitted to their jurisdiction 
and beside these monthly meetings of the hundred there was an annual meeting appointed for a more general inspection of the police of the district for the inquiry into crimes the correction of abuses in magistrates and the obliging of every person to show the decennary in which he was registered the people in imitation of their ancestors the ancient germans assembled there in arms whence a hundred was sometimes called a wapentake and its court served both for the support of military discipline and for the administration of civil justice the next superior court to that of the hundred was the county court which met twice a year after michaelmas and easter and consisted of the freeholders of the county who possessed an equal vote in the decision of causes the bishop presided in this court together with the aldermen and the proper object of the court was the receiving of appeals from the hundreds and decenaries and the deciding of such controversies as arose between men of different hundreds formerly the aldermen possessed both the civil and military authority but alfred sensible that this conjunction of powers rendered the nobility dangerous and independent appointed also a sheriff in each county who enjoyed a coordinate authority with the former in the judicial function his office also empowered him to guard the rights of the crown in the county and to levy the fines imposed which in that age formed no contemptible part of the public revenue there lay an appeal in default of justice from all these courts to the king himself in council and as the people sensible of the equity and great talents of alfred placed their chief confidence in him he was soon overwhelmed with appeals from all parts of england he was indefatigable in the dispatch of these causes but finding that his time must be entirely engrossed by this branch of duty he resolved to obviate the inconvenience by correcting the ignorance or corruption of the inferior magistrates from which it arose he took care to have his nobility instructed in letters and the laws he chose the earls and sheriffs from among the men most celebrated for probity and knowledge he punished severely all malversation in office and he removed all the earls whom he found unequal to the trust allowing only some of the more elderly to serve by a deputy till their death should make room for more worthy successors the better to guide the magistrates in the administration of justice alfred framed a body of laws which though now lost served long as the basis of english jurisprudence and is generally deemed the origin of what is denominated the common law he appointed regular meetings of the states of england twice a year in london a city which he himself had repaired and beautified and which he thus rendered the capital of the kingdom the similarity of these institutions to the customs of the ancient germans to the practice of the other northern conquerors and to the saxon laws during the heptarchy prevents us from regarding alfred as the sole author of this plan of government and leads us rather to think that like a wise man he contented himself with reforming extending and executing the institutions which he found previously established but on the whole such success attended his legislation that everything bore suddenly a new face in england robberies and iniquities of all kinds were repressed by the punishment or reformation of the criminals and so exact was the general police that alfred it is said hung up by way of bravado golden bracelets near the highways and no man dared to touch them yet amidst these rigors of justice this great prince preserved the most sacred regard to the liberty of his people and it is a memorable sentiment preserved in his will that it was just the english should forever remain as free as their own thoughts 
as good morals and knowledge are almost inseparable in every age though not in every individual the care of alfred for the encouragement of learning among his subjects was another useful branch of his legislation and tended to reclaim the english from their former dissolute and ferocious manners but the king was guided in this pursuit less by political views than by his natural bent and propensity towards letters when he came to the throne he found the nation sunk into the grossest ignorance and barbarism proceeding from the continued disorders in the government and from the ravages of the danes the monasteries were destroyed the monks butchered or dispersed their libraries burnt and thus the only seats of erudition in those ages were totally subverted alfred himself complains that on his accession he knew not one person south of the thames who could so much as interpret the latin service and very few in the northern parts who had reached even that pitch of erudition but this prince invited over the most celebrated scholars from all parts of europe he established schools everywhere for the instruction of his people he founded at least repaired the university of oxford and endowed it with many privileges revenues and immunities he enjoined by law all freeholders possessed of two hides of land or more to send their children to school for their instruction he gave preferment both in church and state to such only as had made some proficiency in knowledge and by all these expedients he had the satisfaction before his death to see a great change in the face of affairs and in a work of his which is still extant he congratulates himself on the progress which learning under his patronage had already made in england but the most effectual expedient employed by alfred for the encouragement of learning was his own example and the constant assiduity with which notwithstanding the multiplicity and urgency of his affairs he employed himself in the pursuits of knowledge he usually divided his time into three equal portions one was employed in sleep and the refection of his body by diet and exercise another in the dispatch of business a third in study and devotion and that he might more exactly measure the hours he made use of burning tapers of equal length which he fixed in lanterns an expedient suited to that rude age when the geometry of dialing and the mechanism of clocks and watches were totally unknown and by such a regular distribution of his time though he often labored under great bodily infirmities this martial hero who fought in person fifty-six battles by sea and land was able during a life of no extraordinary length to acquire more knowledge and even to compose more books than most studious men though blessed with the greatest leisure and application have in more fortunate ages made the object of their uninterrupted industry sensible that the people at all times especially when their understandings are obstructed by ignorance and bad education are not much susceptible of speculative instruction alfred endeavored to convey his morality by apologues parables stories apothems couched in poetry and besides propagating among his subjects former compositions of that kind which he found in the saxon tongue he exercised his genius in inventing work of a like nature as well as in translating from the greek the elegant fables of aesop he also gave saxon translations of orosius's and bede's histories and of boethius concerning the consolation of philosophy and he deemed it nowise derogatory from his other great characters of sovereign legislator warrior and politician thus to lead the way to his people in the pursuits of literature 
Meanwhile, this prince was not negligent in encouraging the vulgar and mechanical arts, which have a more sensible, though not a closer connection with the interests of society. He invited, from all quarters, industrious foreigners to repeople his country, which had been desolated by the ravages of the Danes. He introduced and encouraged manufacturers of all kinds, and no inventor or improver of any ingenious art did he suffer to go unrewarded. He prompted men of activity to betake themselves to navigation, to push commerce into the most remote countries, and to acquire riches by propagating industry among their fellow citizens. He set apart a seventh portion of his own revenue for maintaining a number of workmen, whom he constantly employed in rebuilding the ruined cities, castles, palaces, and monasteries. Even the elegances of life were brought to him from the Mediterranean and the Indies and his subjects, by seeing those productions of the peaceful arts, were taught to respect the virtues of justice and industry from which alone they could arise. Both living and dead, Alfred was regarded by foreigners, no less than by his own subjects, as the greatest prince, after Charlemagne, that had ever appeared in Europe during several ages, and as one of the wisest and best that had ever adorned the annals of any nation. Alfred had, by his wife Ethelswitha, daughter of a Mercian earl, three sons and three daughters. The eldest son, Edmund, died without issue in his father's lifetime. The third, Ethelward, inherited his father's passion for letters and lived a private life. The second, Edward, succeeded to his power and passes by the appellation of Edward the Elder, being the first of that name who sat on the English throne. End of section 10 Recording by Robert Hoffman